The scripture reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. It can be found on pages 1 and 2 of the Black Bibles. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks for reading, Susie and Philip. And thank you all for being here. Good morning. My name is John Trapp. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ the King. Such a joy to see all of you here with us. A special welcome to anyone who's here, maybe for the first time, uh, one of the things I want you to know about our church is that this is a place for sinners. Um, so, man, if this is your first time to be at a religious thing in a long time, and you're kind of wondering, should I be here? Um, no one, no member of this church, at least according to their vows, believes that they are better than you. <laughs> we all believe that we are sinners in need of grace here. Uh, and so whoever you are, wherever you are in your walk with the Lord, you're welcome here as we gather and consider what God's word has for us this morning. Um, because one of the things we believe is even though we are great sinners, we have a great savior for our need. And uh, so let's come to him and ask him that he would help us now as we consider his word together. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for the chance to gather around your word, and we pray that, um, that you would bless this time for our good, for your glory, and we ask that you would help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so we're going to talk about marriage today, and we, uh, the, the title of the sermon is The Gift of Marriage. Uh, as I was preparing for this, I was reminded of um, another time when I was hearing a pastor older than me talk about marriage to a room full of college students and he said I think this generation meaning this college student generation this generation is looking around at the wreckage of their parents marriages their friends parents marriages and they're wondering is it even worth it like why why, why even try to do this thing called marriage um, there is certainly a lot of pain that has come out of uh, the institution of marriage a lot of broken marriage the divorce rate in our country has, um, has doubled in the last 50 years. And so for, for many in this room, for many of us, uh, marriage has been a place where we have sensed and felt struggle or hurt or brokenness, whether it's the marriage of our parents or our own marriages. And
And yet marriage can also be this wonderful gift, this blessing. I, I remember sitting on the beach with another pastor friend of mine. Uh, he's man's in his 60s. And we were uh, sitting on the beach. He was smoking a, smoking a cigar. And I was looking down the beach at his wife. And she was playing in the water with their two-year-old daughter that they had just adopted out of the foster care system. Uh, you know, that was their retirement. And I asked him, I was like, what has is, what is this been like for y'all? What's your life like right now? How's this affecting your marriage? And I remember he just took this big, long pull off his cigar and kind of leaned back. And he goes, John, my wife is aging like a fine wine. <laughs> I was like, that is awesome. That is what I, that's what I want. To be able at the end, you know, at the, at the further into my marriage to say, man, she is aging like a fine wine. Our, our love is aging like a fine wine. And this is what marriage is, right? It, it, is, it can be both this wonderful blessing, but also this place of, of great pain and brokenness. This is true for anything that is particularly powerful, right? We can use and wield something that has great power for great harm or great blessing. And marriage is, uh, is the same. It is a gift. It is a powerful gift that God gives to his people. I also want to say on the, on the outset, though, that marriage isn't the ultimate gift that God gives. Um, sometimes marriage can be treated, particularly in the Christian church, as this ultimate gift that we should strive for and, um, and pursue. And in speaking of it this way, it can make somebody who is single feel as if they are somehow some sort of second-class citizen in Christ's church. And if, that's, if you are single and you're at this church, you are not a second-class citizen. In fact, the, the Bible tells us that not only is marriage a gift, but also singleness is a gift. And not only is singleness a gift for the one who receives it, but it is also a gift for the church. There are single men and women in this church, there have been single men and women in churches that I've been part of throughout the years that I've seen who are a massive gift to the church. And in many ways, they're a gift in their singleness. And so... If you're here this morning, uh, this, this sermon actually still is for you because one day you may not be single or, and if you are currently single and single for your lifetime, your married brothers and sisters need your help. They need your help, they need your prayer, they need your encouragement because you're a gift. You're a gift to this church. So, our outline for this morning. First, the gift of marriage. Second, how it works. Third, where it points. The gift of marriage, how it works, where it points. So we start with Adam and he's alone in the garden. And it's, this story kind of begins with this interesting tidbit about the animals. Have you ever imagined what that must have looked like? Adam is there in the garden and this parade of animals is brought before him. It had to have been hilarious. Adam standing there, he's never seen a gerbil before in his life. And here one just walks up to him and he gets to name it. 
and then a skunk comes next. That's a hilarious animal. And then an elephant, a baboon. Can you imagine seeing a baboon for the first time? But it's at that moment that God also says the first is not good in the Bible. Something is not good. Perhaps Adam's not enjoying the animals the way that God wanted him to. Have you ever, have you ever watched a movie and it's a funny movie that you've watched before and laughed really hard when you've watched it, but when you watch it by yourself, it's just not as funny. It's just not as good. I, I grew up watching Seinfeld with my parents when I was in high school, when I was in high school, not younger, but I, uh, I have watched reruns of Seinfeld and been by myself and not come close to laughing the way that I laughed when my dad was in the room because he has this great contagious laugh. Actually, sometimes I will laugh at the episode because I will remember how hard my dad was laughing. Like I have to get back in the room with him in my mind to laugh that hard. Because y'all, we, we were made for this. We were made for the enjoyment, not just of what we receive, but also in sharing in that enjoyment with others. And so in 2.18, Genesis 2.18, it's the first time that God says that something is not good. And sin hasn't happened yet. There is no sin in the world yet. But something is not good. And it's that Adam is alone. And the reason that this is not good is because Adam is made for relationship. And you've heard me say this some in the last couple of weeks as we've talked about what it means to be made in the image of God, but I wanna, I wanna double down on it. Adam is made in the image of a triune God. That means that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. And the reason that this is important is it's, well, we get a hint at it when God makes man. And woman, he says, let us make man in our image. We're made in the image of an us. You, individual person, bear the image of a God who in his essence is relationship, is an us. And so that's, that's you know what? I actually think that's why you don't laugh as hard when you're watching a funny movie by yourself. You're made to share the enjoyment. You're made in the image of an us. Michael Reeves is uh, the president of Union Theological Seminary. He writes a book on um, Trinitarian theology. It's like the most accessible Trinitarian theology book I've ever read. It's great. It's called Delighting in the Trinity. I highly recommend it. But he, he writes a little bit about how great it is that God is triune um, in, this, in this paragraph. I want to share it with you. He says, single person God, so if God wasn't three in one, if he was just one person, right? If he was just one God, one person, one God. Single, persons, single person gods, having spent eternity alone, are inevitably self-centered beings. And so it becomes hard to see why they would ever cause anything else to exist. Wouldn't the existence of a universe be an irritating distraction for the God whose greatest pleasure is looking in a mirror? Creating just looks like a deeply unnatural thing for such a God to do. And if such gods do create and this is true historically, if you look at creation stories of these kinds of gods, if such gods do create, they always seem to do so out of an essential neediness or desire to use what they create merely for their own self-gratification. Everything changes, however, when it comes to the Father, Son, and Spirit. 
Here is a God who is not essentially lonely, but who has been loving for all eternity as the Father has loved the Son and the Spirit. Loving others is not a strange or novel thing for this God at all. It is the root of who he is. That's, that's the one in whose image you are made. You are made in the image of an us who has been eternally loving the Father, Son, and the Spirit for eternity. That's what you're made in the image of. And so for it's, it's for that reason when God creates Adam, he says it is not good for the man to be alone. And so at its, at its root, marriage, marriage is made for companionship. Yes, God like sanctifies us. He makes us more like Jesus through marriage, right? Because we feel his need and our struggle in marriage, if you, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. But at its base, marriage is made for companionship to image God, who is diverse and one. Three persons, one God. In marriage, we have two persons coming together to make one flesh. It images God. But when we think of companionship, we're prone to thinking about it as 21st century Western Americans, which means that we think about things like pretty individualistically and selfishly. So when we think about companionship, you're like, oh, of course, that's why it's not good for Adam to be alone because like he didn't have anyone to entertain him, to listen to him, to have sex with him, to work with him. He was, it wasn't good for him to be alone. He needed somebody to be there for him so that his life would be better. But you've got to remember, that's not how God is. And Adam's made in the image of God. And God in his nature is one who gives of himself, who's concerned for the good of the other person. And so it's not good for Adam to be alone, not because he can't get things for himself, but because Adam can't give of himself. And we actually see, we see this hinted even in the way that Eve is created in Genesis 22. How is she created? By Adam, he's finally able to give of himself. He gives a rib. A rib is taken from Adam. And out of that gift, a woman is made. And it's in giving of himself in verse 23 that Adam finds delight. He bursts into the first poetry or rap or whatever it is. He's excited. At last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's the gift of marriage. The gift of marriage. It's easy to think of it as our own gift for our own benefit. But think about how marriage vows go when you hear them. Each person doesn't speak about the gift that they're going to receive for themselves. They speak about the gift of themselves that they are going to give in love despite the circumstances, despite whatever may happen. And those self-giving vows that are said in marriage are covenantal. And that's what's being pictured here. It's a covenant. Verse 31, the two shall become one flesh. This is not how we often think of marriage. We think of marriage contractually rather than covenantally. A contract is something you can break. You don't like your AT&T service anymore and you want to update your phone, you break the contract, you pay a little extra money and then you switch and you get whatever newfangled thing the other service provider has, right? That's a contract. And oftentimes, 
in our culture, we can think of marriage as the same way. I didn't like my phone service anymore, so I switched it. I fell out of love with my spouse, so I switched it. That is a contractual way of thinking, but marriage is not a contract. It is a covenant. And I remember our pastor in Austin um, explaining a covenant this way. So think about if you took glue, like super glue, and poured it in both your hands. You've got these two hands, and then you rub your hands together, get the glue real deep in your skin pores, and then hold your hand tightly together for about 10 minutes. Now those two have become one. One flesh. One flesh in which they share everything. And to break that covenantal bond will bring harm to both. A covenant is a promise, an agreement in which you enter where you agree to share everything. You, you bring, you turn from your individuality, you become one flesh with another person and you share everything, your hurt, your joy, your suffering, your success. And it's a promise that you make for life. And one of the things that this gift of a covenant does is it brings vulnerability. That's what happens next with them. After they've entered into this covenant, what happens? Look at verse 25. They're naked and unashamed. They're fully, they can be fully known and loved because of the covenant that's been entered into. To be one flesh no matter what. So let's consider how this covenant gift works. Well, it's important, um, it's important to consider what a gift is supposed to be first. I remember when uh, Chrissy and I were engaged and it was, her birthday was coming up. It was my first time to get a gift for her as a fiance. So I wanted to really nail this. And I thought about it and I remembered that she had mentioned one time that she was interested in learning an instrument. Well, that was really exciting to me because I love music and I love playing different instruments. So I bought her a mandolin and I wrapped it up and I gave it to her and she opened it up. She's like, oh, thanks. Is this like a tiny guitar? I was like, it's a mandolin. We're going to be the Von Trapps. You know, I was like so excited. And, you know, like a week later, I had played the mandolin every single day. I'd go over to her house, pick up the mandolin. Oh, this is so cool. Are you learning it? Are you loving it? She played it one time and was done. I bought the gift for myself. And that is often how we can treat marriage. This is a gift for me. I'm getting this for me. But that's not how this gift is intended to work. So I want you to see that even in the roles of marriage that are laid out here in Genesis 2 and also in some other parts of Scripture. That the roles of marriage indicate an economy in which we give ourselves to the other. So first, consider the role of the wife. In verse 18, God determines that Adam needs a helper fit for him. That sounds kind of old-fashioned in 2022, doesn't it? A helper. It sounds a little bit like Ephesians 5, 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and his, is himself its savior. And you may be one, like, wondering, is that out of date? Does that still ring true today? And I think that it does, but I think for many of us, it sounds awful because we don't know what Paul's saying. Our culture, and, and here's why I think it sounds awful to some, our culture measures the value of a person by what we do rather than by who we are. And that is a mistake. The value of a person is not in what they do, but rather who they are as image bearers of God. And we, we actually see this manifested even in the Trinity. So God, who is Father, Son, Spirit, each person of the Trinity has different roles. They do different things. Even in working out our, our salvation, the Father elects. The Son atones for God's people. The Father doesn't atone for God's people. The Son does that. That is the Son's role. And then the Spirit, happy Pentecost, by the way, the Spirit comes and dwells in God's people. The Father and the Son and the Spirit have different roles, and yet they are equal in value and in dignity and in power and in substance. And the same is true for men and women. In the covenant of marriage, a husband and a wife are called to different roles, and yet they are equal in power and in substance and in dignity. But God calls for Eve, he calls for the wife to take on a role of submission. And if you think that sounds denigrating, please remember that the greatest person who ever lived, we believe, Jesus Christ, the greatest person who ever lived took on a role of submission. In John 6, 38, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus submitted to the will of another. He gave of himself for the good of another. He follows the lead of his father and he becomes the helper. Jesus is the helper, becomes the helper of men. John says in 1 John 2, 1, if anyone does sin, we have a helper with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That Hebrew word that's used to describe Eve in verse 18, helper, do you know who else gets described to that? Actually, Women are rarely described in the Old Testament as helper. Here they are. But that word is pretty much used entirely for God in the rest of the Old Testament. This is a way that Eve is going to bear the image of God, the helper, in which God is used. When that word helper is used in the other Old Testament passages, it's used to describe one like a shield or strength. And so Eve is being called to image God as helper. And I think it's so interesting. Jesus doesn't ask us, y'all, to do something he hasn't already done. Jesus has submitted to the Father and the call for anyone, whether they are male or female, who follows Jesus, our call is to submit to him as our Lord and Savior. And, and as a teaching tool for our world, God has given us marriage that displays a picture of the very heart of God. The heart of one who is willing to submit for the good of the other. But that begs the question, wives, what are, just what are you submitting to? 
And I, rem- I remember hearing Ephesians 5 as a little boy thinking, that sounds great. I'll finally have somebody who has to do what I say. You can pray for Chrissy Trapp. But also, if that's your conclusion, you are not hearing what Paul's saying. You are not hearing what he's saying. Because he follows his address to wives with his address to husbands saying, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then he spells it out a little bit more in case we're being a little dense. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, I don't think, as you read that in the context of the rest of Ephesians 5, Paul is just saying, okay, guys, listen, your wives are going to submit to you, but if there's ever any sort of hostage situation, you should be willing to give your life for your wife. That's how this works. That is not what he's saying. What he's saying, he's talking about less exceptional situations like a hostage, which you should do that, by the way, if that does happen. But he's more so speaking about the everyday situations of loving another person, of setting aside your desires, setting aside the TV remote, maybe, setting aside what you want and dying to yourself, men, husbands, dying to yourself for the sake of the flourishing your wife that's the kind of man worth submitting to God depicts a man here who gives of himself for his bride he gives his rib for his bride that's the kind of man worth submitting to God gives men zero space according to scripture God gives men zero space to use their power in some way to lord it over their wife. The power that their wife agrees and gives to them in their covenantal vows, God gives men zero space to use that in any way to abuse their wives or to lord it over them. Instead, men, you are called to use your power, every ounce of your strength to love and to support and to care for your bride. And to be clear, what I mean by, by her submission, this is going to look like a wife following her husband when the two are at a decision-making impasse, which may not happen that often. Maybe it will. Probably not that often. When you're at a complete impasse, this looks like the wife submitting to her husband, but the husband's leadership in that decision-making process as he casts the tie-breaking vote is to answer this question. This is the question he's answering. How can I best love my wife with this decision? That's loving your bride as Christ loved the church. Not how can I use my power so that I can get what I want because this marriage is about a gift for me. No, it's about how can I give my life away so that my bride can flourish? How can I best love my bride? That is marital love. You make decisions not for your own good, but for hers. Well, how do you do this? Well, finally, I want you to consider where marriage points. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Friends, both the role of the wife and the role of the husband in marriage are both reminders pointing us to what Jesus does to save us. As a wife submits to her husband, Jesus submitted to the will of his father when he was in the garden of Gethsemane. 
when he was afraid to go to the cross, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. He submits to the will of his father. And as a husband dies for his wife, Jesus died for his church so that, as Paul says, he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Friends, Jesus loves marriage. He called himself the bridegroom multiple times in the gospel accounts. His first miracle was at a wedding in like a podunk town called Cana in Galilee. He brought 900 bottles of wine. That's somebody who likes weddings. He brought, and it was the best wine. 900 bottles of the best wine to the wedding. And as he was at that wedding, he was looking forward to and even talking about the wedding to come. The marriage supper of the lamb, Revelation 19, when Jesus will finally and fully be married to his church, to his people. But what are those people like? The people that Jesus chooses to marry himself to. Uh, I, I, I wanna tell you about um, a, a story my campus minister told me uh, when I was in college. Um, he was at a, a, another campus before that and he told us about this young man who had had a, a crush on one of the girls in their ministry for a long time. But this girl had been dating another guy for quite a while. And so um, he finally heard that they had broken up. And so he calls, he tries to wait a little while, but he calls pretty soon after. And he says, hey, uh, I heard you broke up. Is that true? Yeah, okay, okay, cool. Um, do you wanna go on a date? What he didn't know is that she had just found out that she was pregnant. And that reality just kind of spills out of her mouth as he asks her on a date. She says, I'm pregnant. And he took about a half second and he said, well, I love pregnant women. <laughs> and they went on their date and now they are married with three kids. Y'all, the kind of bride that Jesus loves is not perfectly put together. The kind of bride that he loves is one that he, as Paul said, had, he washed. He made spotless. He did all the work to do that. It's as if Jesus looks at us and he says, I love addicts. I love people who struggle with same-sex attraction. I love liars and cheaters. I love people who run away from me time and time again. And because he loves us, because he knows the full truth about us, we are naked before him. Because he knows the truth about us, as a good husband, he calls us to submit to his will, to turn from our sin, not in order to get him to start loving us, but because he does love us, he welcomes us into a better life of following him. We are loved by him, not by what we do, but by faith in Christ alone, by putting all of our trust in him. So how might that reality begin affecting the way that we treat our spouses? I'm gonna talk to married couples for a second. Think about that. How might that reality that the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, has loved you at your worst. 
He knows your, he, maybe nobody else knows your worst, but Jesus will love you at your worst. How might that begin to affect the way that we love our spouses? You know, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What if you would consider taking what, your, what you treasure and investing it towards your marriage? Maybe you really treasure your time. I think in 2022, a lot, our treasure for a lot of us is our time. What if you were to invest your time in your marriage? Or maybe your money in your marriage? Spending money on getting a babysitter and going on a date. Spending your money on counseling. You may not know this, we have a counseling center here. Here at Christ the King. Would you, what, if, what if spending your time in counseling would be a way to store up treasure in heaven as you pursue loving your spouse? A great question to ask your spouse, maybe on the drive home today or tonight after you put the kids down for bed, a great question could be, hey, how can I love you better? I want to love you better. How can I do that? And if your spouse asks you that today, you might be tempted to just pull out like your verbal dagger and be like, well, it's about time you ask me. I got a few suggestions, right? But what if instead you answered that question with love also? If you answered their question, how can I love you better, knowing that they're, that they're coming from a place of imperfection and struggle, what if as you consider the love and grace of Jesus, you answered that question with love and grace for your spouse? Do you know this kind of love from Jesus? Friends, that the love of Jesus should humble us. It should make us quick to repent. Would you consider being quick to repent because of what Jesus has done for you? Do your children see you repent to one another in front of them after you fought in front of them? Do your children hear you repent to them? You know, do you want your kids to get the gospel? They need to know that you're a sinner. If you don't acknowledge your sin in front of your kids, how in the world are they gonna know that Jesus saves sinners? What if instead we're kind of giving them a picture of like a Christian is someone who just has their act all together all the time? That's not the gospel. Our kids need to know that we're sinners and need to see that we acknowledge our sin. What if we became quick to repent, quick to listen, slow to anger? The love of Christ can compel us to that. Do you know his love? You can, if you don't yet. Come to him, even this day. The bridegroom awaits, and he is good. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you did send your son, our savior. We pray that you would help us to look to him by the power of your spirit as we try to love one another. Um, We pray for the marriages specifically in this church. Uh, Lord, where there are wounds and hurt, we pray that you would bring the healing that only you can bring. 
Lord, um, for those who are um, mourning over marriages that are broken uh, or over lost loved ones, we pray that you would be near them today um, and that you would put the hope of the Lord Jesus and the marriage supper of the Lamb before them as we, uh, as we await that day. We pray that you would give us faith and we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.